more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler. And I'm Brian Lynn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are very excited to be joined by Everardo Gonzalez, a second-year PhD student in robotics. Welcome to the show, Ever. Hi there. Thank you for the welcome. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so could you just give us a quick, um, in like one or two sentences, what is your research on? Yeah, so my research focuses on how to use machine learning to basically coordinate large numbers of agents within a swarm with kind of a focus on robotics. So agents. So yes. like I imagine them with like suits and bow ties and slicked back hair. They could be, but usually <laughs> not in my research. Um, so an agent is basically any kind of entity that can uh, basically take some kinds of observations in an environment and then act in that environment. And so robotics is kind of a natural fit for that because when you have robots operating in the real world, uh, they're taking some kinds of sensor measurements and then they're you know, performing some kind of actions like driving around um, or trying to open a door or something like that. And so it's a pretty natural fit for this kind of research. Okay, so then why do we care about robots that swarm or work together why can't we just like set all a bunch of robots that are really good at making a soup can all together to make a bunch of soup cans and have you fine why is there like this why do we care about the collective behavior well that works great if you're making soup cans <laughs> um but a lot of robotics tasks really involve uh kind of these more complex coordinated tasks um so you can take for example you know something like taking underwater observations um, you could, you know, send a whole bunch of robots that are all really good at taking uh, samples or kind of like nice images of, uh, of all of these underwater spaces. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll actually coordinate well with each other. Uh, in fact, you could have multiple of them, you know, covering the same space over and over again. Uh, and that's not a really efficient use of resources and not super helpful. Uh, and that's where you're, you're going to want some kind of intelligent coordination so that you're actually splitting up these robots in a way where they're actually all kind of contributing instead of, you know, you have them kind of doing the same things over and over again where you're like, oh, that's not actually that helpful. You could do better. <laughs> yeah. So so you teach robots to get along. A little of, bit. Yeah, you, you could put like it that way. kind of like a robot kindergarten teacher. Yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> it has a lot to do with... Um, 
kind of figuring out, you know, what uh, what kinds of incentives almost you give these learning algorithms so that they'll actually work together. Um, yeah. Should I get into that? Yeah. So so what is like an incentive for a an agent? Yeah. So agents are typically these kind of like independent learning agents uh, where they're they have some kind of, you know, they take all of these actions in the environment uh, and then they get some kind of environmental feedback. Uh, when we're talking about a collective, this is like one giant feedback signal uh, that basically says like how well the entire system performed. Um, and then each agent basically, or robot, uh, tries to figure out, well, okay, uh, what actions did I do that were helpful, which ones were not so helpful, and how should I kind of adjust my behavior based off of that? Uh, and that gets really challenging when you're dealing with these kinds of big systems um, because oftentimes, you know, it's pretty trivial to say how well the system did. But when you're looking at the individual agents, it's like, okay, well, which agent actually contributed to that, you know? Like with the underwater observation task, uh, you might collect all of these observations at the end of this long kind of mission. Uh, and you can say, you know, give some kind of score of, of how good all these observations were. Um, but then, you know, there might have been some robots that took more of those observations and some that took less. And so you're going to want to give different feedbacks uh, accordingly. Uh, so let's back up a little bit. What is the underwater observation task? Yeah, so this is basically a really nice motivating example for a lot of this learning-based coordination stuff that I do. Uh, the idea is basically you would have this collective of robots uh, that can all operate underwater. And then you have all of these different scientific points of interest that you'd want them to go and find and then also collect some kinds of observations on. And so this might be, you know, like coral or seaweed or eels. Um, and it's kind of a nice, almost abstract, more abstract formulation that lets you kind of push away a lot of the um, really rigid implementation details and focus more on the kinds of algorithms and the learning and the incentives that my research focuses on. Uh, where the idea is basically like uh, collect observations on all of these scientific points of interest and they might have different requirements. Um, like you might have, you know, uh, an eel can be, you know, really difficult to actually try and detect. So you might need three or four robots to actually go and observe it at the same time to actually collect a good observation. Um, and they might have different kinds of value. You know, you might actually care a lot more about your coral observations than your seaweed observations. You know, maybe there's... Uh, some kind of um, disease or something going amongst your coral. And so it's like really valuable to go and collect observations on those specific corals. Um, and so it's, it's like a really nice adaptable kind of uh, formulation that helps illustrate some of the different challenges that you can run into with these, with these systems. So when you have all of these agents or robots going to collect these observations underwater, do you have all of them kind of doing the same thing and learning how to do it on their own, but within the group or are there like team leaders? Mm. Yeah. So my particular research goes a little deeper. Uh, we basically split up our big collective of agents into leaders and followers uh, where the idea is that your followers kind of exhibit these really simple behaviors and they're not really learning anything. They're still contributing to the system um, but their role is mostly to try and just stay around their neighbors. Uh, and so this can be really helpful in this kind of observation task where, you know, you, you, need, you know that you're going to need some of these agents to stick together or some of these robots to stick together for their observations. 
Um, but actually, you know, how to like split them up and like where exactly to send each one, you don't really know that ahead of time. And that's where the leader agents come in. And so your leader agents are the ones that are each independently trying to learn, okay, how do I influence the rest of the swarm in order to get this kind of high-level behavior that we're looking for? And how are, like, what's kind of the difference, I guess, between how the um, kind of leaders are learning versus how the the other robots, the followers, I guess? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... That's kind of the interesting thing about my research is that it lies at this kind of weird intersection of these kind of pre-programmed swarms and these like really intelligent learning systems um, where the followers aren't actually learning anything. Um, They're just behaving according to these really prescribed rules. Uh, And so the idea is that the leaders are, you know, simultaneously learning to go and take the observations that they need to. Um, but also learning to influence the followers to basically get this kind of collective behavior to get all the observations that the agents need. Yeah, so this um, reminds me of a, a game I played as a kid called Follow the Leader, where I imitated everything my brother did, and then when he told me to stop playing, I would just say stop playing and annoyingly continue to do exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but so with no thoughts, just imitation, is that about about right? Yeah, I, I would say that's um, that's about right. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, it definitely does feel a lot like, you know, the followers do end up, um, you know, following the leaders around, and that's kind of the big, uh, that's kind of one of the big advantages of this approach. Um, but then you can also have the followers kind of, like, follow each other around, and you have these kind of interactions where, you know, you might have the followers kind of moving together, um, but you might actually want to, like, split them up. Um, you know, it might not be useful to have maybe 20 followers all clumped together uh, when you only need maybe five for these eel observations. It's like, okay, well, maybe it'd be better to split them up into like groups of four. And that's where the leaders kind of come in and they're like, okay, I'm going to try and influence, you know, this group of four and take them over here. And then another one comes in and tries to grab the other group of four and pull them somewhere else. Um, so it definitely is, it definitely is similar, but there's that little tweak of the followers are kind of also influencing each other and sometimes you want them to split up. So if these leaders are intelligent, why not make everyone intelligent? Yeah. So that's another really interesting thing, uh, is that it can actually get super challenging, uh, with really large numbers of agents all operating together. If you have all of them trying to learn things at the same time, um, because remember, they're getting this, you know, big system feedback um, that you have to try and distill into individual agent feedback. And when you have like so many of them learning at the same time, uh, it gets really hard to kind of uh, learn anything <laughs> because <laughs> because at the same time that, you know, you're trying out different actions and behaviors, um, so is everyone else. Uh, and so they're not really behaving in a way that's really predictable. Uh, And instead, you know, you might try the same thing a hundred times and each time uh, it might come out differently because your, you know, the other agents in the system uh, are also trying out different things and that's also going to affect that system feedback. Uh, And so by having, you know, some of these, um, some of these agents, just kind of these simple kind of follower agents, uh, you really like drastically reduce a lot of that kind of noisy feedback problem. See, so it's like if there's um, too many leaders, they're all pressing buttons, and you don't know which button did the thing mm-hmm. or which leader. They're just knowing that 
the right button was pressed at some point. Yeah, no, or the exactly. wrong button. Yeah, or the wrong button, <laughs> or several wrong buttons, yeah. or several right buttons. One hundred wrong buttons have been pressed somehow. And now you've been using this kind of example of of underwater robots, but your research is actually carried out mostly on a computer, right? Yes. Yeah. So my research kind of. Um, you know, wipes away a lot of the complexities of real-world robotics for now, uh, and focuses more on these really simple what I what I call like these two D this two D particle domain, um, where basically you know you don't you don't have any complicated robot dynamics or anything. You've just got this like two D plane. Um, I mean, it's it's a rectangle. <laughs> they just move around in a rectangle, uh, and each agent is basically just a little dot, and it has some x y position, um, and it can take you know observations of surrounding area in that space, uh, and then it just moves according to some little x y movement uh, at each kind of step in time, uh, and that's how a lot of these uh, simulations work. Um, and you might say, okay, well, you know, talking a big game about robotics here. Um, but then, you know, carrying out these experiments on this really simplified particle domain, um, you know, why why is that? Uh, and the really nice thing about using this kind of simplified particle domain is that it lets us focus on the coordination, uh, and, you know, we can get to kind of more of the hardware implementation problems uh, a little later. That's kind of a different research gap. So this kind of takes away all of the issues with, like, maybe the robot breaks down or the sensor stops working or... Yep. A shark comes and eats the robot. Yeah, fish eats the robot, robot. fish. <laughs> you can just focus on the robot, the behavior of these agents and how different yes. things affect that. Yeah, exactly. Robots can be uh, really tricky to work with because, yeah, they oftentimes do break down and then you also bring in a lot of the uncertainty in the real world. Um, as much as as much as we might like to think that we can control a lot of factors, uh, when it comes to robotics, it becomes very evident <laughs> that, <laughs> that it's just really hard to control for all of that. It must be cost effective too, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> the cost of two dots versus two robots. Yeah, no, it's very different. <laughs> <laughs> Their simulations are a lot cheaper than uh, having robots running around and breaking all the time. So, what are some what are some potential things that you're hoping to uh, like accomplish with your research? Like what are you what's the biggest problem you're trying to solve? Yes. Yeah, so I guess the kind of big problem that I'm trying to solve right now um, is on how you actually intelligently like split up a swarm to kind of tackle several different tasks at once. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of literature that kind of looks at how you can guide a, a swarm with this kind of set of leaders and the followers um, to kind of one area, um, which is, a you know, a really challenging problem on its own. Uh, but then it doesn't really get into, you know, like, what if I actually have multiple things I want my swarm to do at once? You know, that's one of the huge advantages of having a swarm is that you have so many agents that can be in so many different places doing different things at once. Um, but then there's kind of this big gap in actually doing that with these learning-based methods. Uh, and so my research is basically like, okay, you know, so we have these leaders and followers. How do we actually get the leaders to start splitting up the swarm? Um, and that's where my research kind of looks at this idea of reward shaping, um, which is basically, you know, you have that system feedback uh, and it's like, OK, well, how can we actually turn that into useful feedback for these leaders um, that takes into account, you know, both their direct contribution to the system and going and collecting observations, um, but also the contribution of the followers that they influenced, um, because that, you know, isn't 
typically something you have to really deal with um, with reward shaping because usually, you know, you don't have this kind of split of leaders and followers. They're all just learning together. Um, and so this kind of introduces this new problem of like, okay, how do you actually capture the contribution of, of the followers when they're not learning anything? And so that's kind of the big thing that my research is focused on addressing right now. And so how, how do you figure out this credit assignment? Yeah, you start asking what if questions. Um, so this <laughs> Sounds like a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It is a rabbit hole. Um, to kind of simplify things down, we focus on very specific what if questions. Uh, so we use this kind of idea of a counterfactual. Break that down um, for us. Yes. <laughs> a counterfactual, you know, in simplest terms is just anything that's counter to the facts. Um, but, you know, we're more concerned with useful counterfactuals. Um, so we're basically trying to kind of suss out of this big system feedback, uh, you know, what is, uh, what is the contribution of this one leader? Uh, and so, you know, if we're taking away the followers for a second and just focusing on these leaders, uh, you could say, okay, well, you know, we can, we can look at what the system actually did and what the leaders actually did. Uh, what if this leader didn't do anything? And that's a counterfactual right there. And then we can say, okay, well, let's, you know, let's calculate the system feedback again with a counterfactual of, okay, this leader agent didn't do anything, um, and then compare it to the actual system feedback, and we can take a difference of the two. We call this a difference reward. Um, and that basically captures what that leader's specific contribution to the system was. Now, this gets a little more complicated, like I said, when we're taking into account the followers, um, because, you know, it doesn't make sense to just take out that leader for the counterfactual because it was also influencing all these followers. Um, and so right now what I'm experimenting with is like, okay, well, let's try and figure out, you know, which leader each follower kind of stuck around or tried to follow. Uh, and let's take out a leader and it's kind of assigned followers as the counterfactual, um, you know, calculate a difference reward with that. And that kind of tries to capture um, that kind of, uh, that kind of, credit of that uh, leader agent. Of course, that has, you know, you can even see that there's some assumptions baked in there of like each follower having a distinct leader. Um, but really, if these swarms are operating for a long time, then, uh, you know, a follower might like change leaders over time. Or if a swarm is large enough, a follower might not even interact with the leaders. It might just interact with other followers based off of like which agents are nearby. Um, and so that's where, you know, things start to get really tricky. And uh, those are kind of gaps that I haven't really explored yet so there could totally be like follower drama yes <laughs> you're not a good enough leader i'm going over here yeah in a sense uh they're not quite uh sentient <laughs> yeah uh, yeah we're working on it <laughs> so it sounds like very almost like philosophically difficult to be like to quantify what is the impact of the absence of this thing yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, that's why they call it a PhD. Um, <laughs> that's where the philosophy comes. I thought they call that a metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that totally, you know, comes into, like, with the that current method of, you know, trying to assign, um, you know, each follower kind of a leader and removing them in the counterfactual based off of that. Um, yeah, that totally does come with a, philosoph with a philosophy of, like, okay, well, you know, what assumptions can we make here? And when are those assumptions going to work? And when are they going to break down? Um, and, you know, the first step with these kinds of things is always to make a few assumptions <laughs> so that you can get somewhere. <laughs> um, and I think later on, 
trying to kind of build off of these ideas and expand to all these different kind of, uh, you know, changing the assumptions and saying like, okay, well, does this method still work or do we need a different kind of counterfactual? Um, and I think that kind of goes more into the philosophy of like, well, how do we generate new research without it being like, you know, crazy overwhelming and trying to tackle too many things mm-hmm. at once? Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I've simplified it for now. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I feel like across, no matter what your discipline is, you have to start somewhere. And yeah. that starting somewhere means making a lot of assumptions and controlling for a lot of things that may not actually be like, that may be very relevant in real yeah. life applications. But I mean, that's the, the heart of the research, right? Yeah. You yeah. start somewhere. So it sounds like, right, too many leaders, if everyone is smart, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. But then you're saying if there's, you know, these followers might end up just following another follower when there's not enough. Is there like a really sweet spot for the number of leaders, like one leader for every 37 followers? Yeah, there's actually some cool studies on this um, in this kind of like learning, uh, with this kind of learning stuff um, that finds that usually the there's kind of this optimal number of leaders that you can have. Uh, like if you have too few uh, like they're just going to have a really hard time influencing that swarm. Um, because if you say have like a hundred followers and one leader, um, you know, that leader can only really affect followers within a certain proximity. Uh, and so it's going to be really hard to influence that entire swarm. Um, but if you say have 50 leaders and a hundred followers, okay, well now, you know, each leader can kind of take two and it's a lot easier to divvy up. Um, you know, if you have like 300 leaders and 100 followers, it's like, okay, well, now we're back at the problem of, you know, now the system feedback is really noisy and trying to learn anything is going to be really difficult. So aside from just being like fun and interesting, mm-hmm. what are some applications of swarming robots? Like why why do we care about solving this problem? I think there are a lot of reasons to care. Uh, So there's kind of the, I see like some political incentives that kind of scare me um, for the applications of these swarming robots. Um, And then these kind of more economic incentives and then also kind of my hopes of what I would like to see these things do. Um, And so I think there are pretty strong political incentives of using them for warfare and like you can't really dodge that (laughs) that question uh, when you're talking about swarms. Um, with kind of the big thing being that like, oh, like why would we send people when we can send a swarm of robots to do like this reconnaissance task um, or even start making like these life or death decisions? Um, Which uh, to me is a bit scary. (laughs) Um, Mostly because it kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's like automated warfare. Um, and that kind of brings down a lot of the political cost of actually going and engaging in these kinds of conflicts uh, because, you know, you can just send robots and it just really dehumanizes the whole thing. Um, but there's also these kind of more, uh, to me, they're almost kind of mundane things that swarms can help with, uh, like better kind of transportation systems. Mm. So there's this kind of research that can uh, formulate this whole, you know, this whole paradigm of, of multi-agent learning uh, and not so much the leader follower part of it um, but more just the learning based coordination stuff uh, for air traffic control with the, with the idea being that you know it basically makes air traffic uh, more efficient 
you can kind of have more planes operating at the same time without uh, crashing into each other. Um, and it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, if it gets us more leg room, I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. Like flights are a little more efficient. That's cool. Uh, and there's also some cool applications for autonomous vehicles uh, where you might have like, you know, these kinds of uh, learning based methods applied to this giant fleet of autonomous vehicles and kind of coordinating them around a city. Um, but at that point, it's like, okay, well, you know, should we be making our cities car dependent in the first place? Um, and so I'm kind of like, oh, okay, I, I guess, yeah, you could use it for that. Um, but I also think they have some really cool applications for addressing the climate crisis, hmm. uh, even if there aren't necessarily super strong political or economic incentives for that quite yet. Um, you know, like for instance, in the underwater observation task, you know, you can imagine that if we're trying to collect information about our oceans, uh, it's going to be a lot faster if we can send out a big swarm that can get this kind of big broad coverage uh, and work together to kind of get the observations we need or the information we need uh, rather than sending like a single robot to try and do everything. You know, it's kind of like the uh, the information that like a robot can collect in like 50 years, um, 50 robots can collect in one year if they're well coordinated. Um, and then also, you know, you have things like wildfires becoming more prevalent uh, in which case, you know, you could have a kind of UAV swarm that actually goes around and tries to help direct resources for managing these wildfires um, by basically intelligently going around and kind of saying like, okay, this area uh, is actually like looking real bad right now. Uh, so let's collect some more observations and then kind of, uh, you know, alert some kind of human operator that like, hey, you guys need to focus on this right now. Um and so there's definitely like all of these different kinds of uh, ways that these intelligent swarms could be used. Um, it really just depends on uh, what the future holds. Kind of have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, anytime this kind of technology comes out, it stresses me out a little bit because I think about you know things like um, when someone creates something and like tries to make it free or like open, and then someone some supervillain gets their hands on it and all of a sudden it's $4 million for, yeah. um, for medicine. Um, I think one of the, uh, yeah. one of the things that can hopefully, uh, alleviate the stress for you with swarms is that they're, we're, we're quite a while away from putting these really like intelligent algorithms on actual robots. Um, that's kind of a big research gap and, you know, we, we make a lot of assumptions with these learning algorithms and coordination algorithms that, you know, just kind of fall apart in the real world and we still need to address that. So that's going to be a while before you see the kinds of systems that I just described. Yeah, so so when I think of swarms, the first thing that comes to my mind is that book Prey by Michael Crichton where the there, these nanobots that swarm, Ooh. you know, of course they, and I, I'm paraphrasing here because it's been a long time since I read the book, but they, yeah. they essentially gain sentience and act as an independent entity oh, that's and like take you know take over the world or whatever yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have to worry about a situation like that no no and then also um just from a like learning perspective uh you know it, robots gaining sentience is a uh, very sci-fi um and a lot of the you know a lot of how machine learning works is that there's a very clear kind of objective that you set um and then your system is just going to learn to optimize that um and you know unless you figure out a way to codify like sentience as an objective, which I, I think has been stumping philosophers for centuries. Uh, I don't think you're going to be able to do that. <laughs> but if we code the robots to build more robots, they won't need us anymore. That'd be cool. 
Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Once they can code themselves, we're out. <laughs> we're in the zoos. Uh, yeah, fortunately. Job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fortunately, robots don't want anything. They just do what we tell them. <laughs> Unless we code them to want things. If you can figure out how to do that, <laughs> that's going to be a whole new field of research. So how did you end up studying these swarming robots? Yeah, that's a little a bit about question. your background. Yeah, I kind of just ended up here. Um, yeah, so I guess my background is kind of more on uh, just getting robots to work. Um, I did a bachelor's degree at Olin College of Engineering and kind of got a lot of cool exposure to different hands-on robotics work. Um, and then I kind of wanted to get into research. Um, you know, I, I kind of felt like the more interesting work that people would let you do with robotics is really in kind of the research side of it. Um, but they wouldn't really let me do that so much um, without kind of an advanced graduate degree. So I was like, okay, um, you know, I'll look into that. Uh, and kind of the big part of that is getting familiar with research. So I talked to one of the professors, uh, Melinda Malley, um, on campus at Olin about trying to get into some research and you know, she was into swarms, and so I was like, all right, you know, let's try out the swarming thing. Um, and that was looking at these kind of little flipping robots and trying to assemble them into different shapes and things. Um, and then when I was looking at uh, grad school, I was kind of like, okay, well, you know, I have kind of a research background in swarms now and multi-agent stuff. Let me try and leverage that. Um, and that's kind of that's how I found myself here at OSU working in Dr. Con Toomer's lab, uh, the artificial intelligence and in now the artificial agents and distributed no autonomous agents and distributed <laughs> intelligence lab. I remember the acronym. I don't remember what it stands for because we don't use it a lot. Um, yeah, and we talked a bit about these kind of multi-agent systems, and he, you know, I was interested in machine learning, so we talked a bit about that, and it was a pretty good fit. And here I am. And what do you do? You know what you want to do next in your career? I I really like the kind of know ocean applications of the stuff uh and trying to kind of address you know use these systems to help us kind of uh better understand and address climate change um so i'd really like to go like in that direction like a you know right now i'm really focused on these kind of learning algorithms um with like swarm coordination uh, but i'm really hoping to kind of move in a future direction that's kind of scooting this more towards like underwater hardware and getting this to work on underwater robots which might mean, you know, leaving the swarm stuff behind and focusing more on the coordination stuff. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a really exciting direction for research. But I imagine some of the grad students that enjoy getting to fly out to the tropics to scuba dive for data collection are going to be a little sad when that when you figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be the one flying out to the tropics. Yeah, the deploying robots. my robots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we are just about at the end of our show here. Um, so we have a couple traditions yes. at the end of the episode. Uh, so, Ever, tell us what your favorite thing about your research is. I think my favorite thing about my research is uh, getting to talk to my lab mates about it. Um, it's like, you know, it took me like over a year to really get to a point where I feel like I understand things. Like it, it took a long time to get up to speed. Um, and now that I'm there, it's really cool to have these super in-depth conversations with my lab mates where we're like, in a sense, like speaking the same, like technical language about these things, um, and kind of bouncing ideas off of each other, 
uh, and going into these like really just having these really in-depth conversations uh, on on this research uh, is actually like super cool and rewarding and it, it makes it kind of feel you know like connected uh, to all these different things so I really like that aspect do other people in your lab study like similar kinds of things or are you all pretty different yeah so we're all focused on basically learning based coordination uh, we're you know, my niche within that right now is is kind of swarms and this whole leader follower idea. Um, but everyone has their own specialty. Um, yeah, and I won't get into them <laughs> too much right now because <laughs> they're really complicated, but also really cool. I do believe we had one of your lab mates on earlier yes, in 2022. Yeah. We had Anna Nicholson. Yeah, so if yeah. you're interested in learning about AI applications in healthcare, Anna talked about that. You can look for her episode anywhere you get your podcasts. Yeah. I, I talk to her a lot about research. <laughs> so she's, yeah, she's really cool to talk to. A swarm of robotic nurses somehow doesn't make me think of comforting healing vibes, <laughs> but I can see the need. <laughs> yeah, we need to reformulate the problem a bit for that to, <laughs> to really work. Uh, okay, and then we'll also ask if you for a piece of advice so this could be to a past self former uh someone you uh, undergrads your future self someone in this uh, metaverse of all the what ifs mm-hmm. for your robots the robot the, the, the advice robot. could be for the robot <laughs> the advice could be for the robot that's a research direction actually <laughs> yeah <laughs> incredible um, <laughs> um yeah so i actually think i would have advice for my past self and other uh aspiring robotics engineers uh, and it's that you don't have to excel at everything within engineering to be a good roboticist. Uh, I think that there's a whole lot of pressure within engineering, uh, especially in like undergraduate settings, uh, that like you have to be, you know, you, you don't just have to be a good engineer. You have to be really good at like chemistry and physics and calculus and multivariable calculus, linear algebra and all this stuff. Um, when like the reality of it is that, no, you can kind of specialize, um, you know, and you don't have to stress yourself out at like trying to be good at every single thing. Um, and that's definitely something that like, you know, is, is very much, I think, built into a lot of the like academic incentives that we get. Um, but I really think, you know, if you can make the choice to kind of drop some things and not be uh, like not excel at every single thing and kind of, you know, relax a little more and kind of focus on what you want to focus on, then you should totally go for it, uh, you know, with the constraint of like, well, you still have to like get certain grades, to like get to a certain place. Um, but definitely being a little more intentional of like, you know what, I, uh, I don't actually need to know how to solve like this particular equation and I'll still get to where I want to be. And that's okay. Unless where you want to be is solving that equation. <laughs> yeah, well, in that case, you focus on that equation. You leave some of the other stuff alone. No, I think that's great advice for, for anyone in any field is really, it, it, especially while you're in school, mm-hmm. especially as an undergraduate, it can be so, there can be so much pressure to yeah. be excelling at every single thing. And, you know, when I was in college, I took a physics class. I got my first C ever. And I was like, well, this is it. My career's over. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be an art student now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> it really isn't. I can feel like that sometimes for yeah. sure. Well, Ever, thank you so much. Um, our final tradition here is to have you pick a song to end the show on. So please tell us the song you picked and why you picked it. Yeah, so I picked uh, Lo Que Tu Me Das by Juan Palitos Chinos. Uh, and it's a, honestly, it's a nice, relaxing music uh, for a late night on a Sunday. 
Um, and I think it's also really cool because it's kind of this, uh, it takes Japanese city pop and kind of puts this Mexican twist on it. And I think that's a lot of fun. Beautiful. All right. Well, listeners, enjoy this chill Sunday night music and stay curious. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.